0: Hello, and welcome to the Bureau 42 Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcast. I am your host, Alex Case, and joining me once again today...
1: David Stark. Always a pleasure to be here.
0: Yep, and it's Halloween, and so we're going for a very scary movie this week with um, Event Horizon, probably the best film from director Paul Anderson. And that is just... that is just a low bar. I mean... That is
1: damning by faint praise at its finest.
0: <laughs> Which is, you know, it's almost kind of a shame that it's damning with faint praise, because this is a fairly effective horror film. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's directed by Paul Anderson. Not Paul W.S. Anderson, but Paul Anderson, direct, also director of Mortal Kombat.
1: No, no, it's the same guy. Yep. Yeah. Before he put the W.S. into his name.
0: <laughs> no, actually, Paul W.S. Anderson is a complete... oh. Oh yeah, oh oh I see what you mean. Yeah, the Paul WS added his name added the initials after this guy. Yeah. I think this is the same guy. No. Paul WS Anderson Let's see here, what else has he done? Paul William Scott Anders Oh you're right. Oh this is- oh this is right, this is the, the Paul WS. Okay, there's another Paul Anderson as well.
1: Yeah. That one's like Paul though, with an O, I think.
0: No, um that's the science fiction writer. You're right. <laughs> there are a lot of Paul Andersons. Yeah. So, my bad. This one is Paul W.S. Anderson. And then there's Paul Thomas Anderson, is what I was thinking of. Oh, yeah, yeah. Director of Magnolia and Bookie Nights and Inherent Vice. So, um, this film came out in 1997. And I've heard it described as The Shining in Space. I've heard it described as The Haunting, the Robert Weiss film in space. And I believe we were talking earlier and you were describing it as. It's almost a prequel to warhammer 40k
1: yeah there are just so many parallels that just make this fit right into there <laughs> right into that primarily from the faster than light travel involves going through hell <laughs> oh but uh rewatching this movie they have no idea how the ftl works in this movie because <laughs> it's described as sort of a warp drive the uh demonstration that um Our Sam Neill character, uh, Dr. Weir, provides, is a wormhole drive, and the effects is like a hyper drive, putting you into another dimension entirely. However, that's all forgivable, because the movie runs with it.
0: Yeah, and a lot of the rest of the film tries to be a lot more hard in its science. I kind of wish we also could have gotten Blaine here on the podcast, just because getting into the physics of this and what it gets right and what it gets wrong. Hopefully he'll post something in the comments Yep. talking about the physics of this movie. If he's seen it, if he hasn't seen it, then obviously it's kind of hard for him to do that. So, p- the the backstory of the of the events of the film, which is set up in a um, little opening text card at the beginning. And we're in the year 2047. A research vessel, vessel called the Event Horizon disappeared during its maiden voyage four years pri- sorry, seven years prior, and... It's now sent to... Lucy Clark is now sent to investigate, and with them is um, the designer of the ship and its drive, Dr. Weir. Um, So right now we're basically pretty much more in 2010 territory in terms of the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Okay. (laughs) And they come aboard and discover something really, really bad has happened here. Um... Like, very early on, the distress signal from the ship has lots of screaming and animal noises, and someone's saying in Latin, what appears to be liberate me, or save me. And they get aboard, and there's fleshy bits stuck to the side of the, sh- of the uh, bridge, there is a frozen, desiccated, mutilated corpse, and the rest of the crew is either the bits that are stuck to the wall or is missing entirely.
1: Yeah, uh, worth noting is that um, on our rescue vessel, the Lewis and Clark's approach to the ship, the scanners said that there was, like, non discriminant life everywhere. So, good chance the ship
0: itself is now alive. Yep. Our ship is crewed by Captain Miller, played by Lawrence Fishburne, pre-The Matrix, in a excellent role, excellent performance, in fact, everyone's performance in this is really good. We have Jolie Richardson as Lieutenant Stark, the first officer, Sean Pertwee, son of John Pertwee, as uh the ship's pilot. We may be talking about him a bit late a bit later if we ever get around to I don't know if this is in our fantasy tournament Oh shoot, what's the uh, Dog Soldiers? Kathleen Quinlan as the medical tech, Jack Noseworthy as the engineering as the engineering ensign, Richard T. Jones as the rescue tech, who's kind of smartass. He, he's very important to the plot
1: because he brings some levity into what would otherwise be a drudge which is at times can be over the top but is definitely necessary in a film as dark as this one.
0: Absolutely and his levity is very, it's not overblown no. he's not like he's not like the black guy in your average slasher movie where he's super hamming it up and super, acting super cartoony, he's... I'd compare him to, like, your um, Hudson from Aliens.
1: Absolutely.
0: And also, Jason Isaacs as the ship's medical off, as the uh, other medical officer, the trauma surgeon, DJ. You'll be talking about him more later when we get to the Harry Potter movies and the fantasy tournament. And, of course, the designer, William Weir, uh, played by Sam Neill, who we will talk and be talking about again when we get to Jurassic Park. <laughs> Uh, among other movies. On the way, as we the sh- ship makes its approach, we basically get the rundown of the ship's drive, that it was meant to have sort of a prototype FTL drive, which is described as being like a wormhole drive. The facts that have it be more like a warp drive. And apparently it drops you into another dimension entirely, like a hyperdrive. And the ship is kind of in a decaying orbit in Neptune, to the point where it's basically in Neptune's atmosphere at this time.
1: Yeah. Um, there's a few points where uh, where this actually is an important um, difference between being in a vacuum and being in an upper atmospheric near vacuum. Specifically, uh, one character lives when he wouldn't have otherwise.
0: So, they get aboard the ship. It is very atmospheric, tense, and suspenseful. It's, the ship is as... Um, Captain Miller describes it as basically become a tomb. And by this this exploration, they make their way to the ship's um, drive core, which feels like an OSHA violation waiting to happen.
1: Oh my god, yes. It is... The corridor to the engine is appropriately described as a meat grinder. It has a single railing through a spinning corridor uh, lined with spikes, and this, this... And the... Walkway has no handholds, and hilariously worth noting is that when Lawrence Fishburne has to run down this, they had to do it in multiple takes, because he got disoriented by the spinning corridor lined with spikes. Same reason, and
0: same thing happened to all the cameramen who had to go down it. And the door at the end, when it closes, the door has spikes in it as well. (laughs) Yeah. And then you get to the main engine compartment itself with its spinning gyroscopic gravity drive core thing, which contains a well-contained black hole, according to the description. And that in and of itself is ringed with spikes all along the walls. Supposedly, the plan was to have the spikes when the drive engages move in and connect to like the gyroscopic portions of the uh, drive, but they weren't able to pull that off with their budget and w- with the time they had available. So they just
1: atmosphere.
0: Yep. This is our second film in a row that we've discussed, which we had a super tight uh, shooting schedule, though for different reasons. When the film was greenlit and when Paul W.S. Anderson was hired to direct, they already had a specific release date in mind.
1: Oh, that is never a good
0: sign. No. And it was in August, not October. You're making a horror movie. Uh, I guess they were trying to hit that action Late, the
1: late-summer action film, but that might be one of the reasons this film did not do as well as it did. <laughs> Wrong marketing.
0: Yeah, so... So, Justin is, pull, um, is pulled into the drive portal and then I- expelled later. Comatose. The rest of the crew starts finding themselves racked with visions of mysterious things that they've... from, from their past that haunt them. Like, for example, Peter's left her son behind on Earth... And she's estranged from him, and she's suddenly and she's worried about him, and now she's seeing him on board the ship. Miller left a crew member to die on a previous ship he was on that he had to abandon, and he's traumatized by that. And Doctor Weir's wife committed suicide, so there's that. And none of them have told anyone else particularly about this, so it becomes clear the ship is reading into their minds, and perceiving something about uh, about them and sending it against them as a weapon of some sort or another.
1: Well, yeah, the ship's become either possessed or just some sort of genius Loki, loci, however you want to pronounce it. And it definitely has a malevolent presence and it is letting the crew know that. <laughs> so, I
0: think it's more of just f***ing with them at this point, toying with them. And then the crew finds the The ship's log and manages to to decode it, and sees what happened to the crew. And Captain Miller has probably Boris Fisler has has really the right level of deadpan response of like, "Yep, we are leaving. F this ship." Yeah, and Weir's reaction: "You can't just leave this ship." Andrew responds, I'm not just leaving this ship, I'm going to retreat to a safe distance, fire a whole bunch of attack missiles in it, until it's radioactive dust. F this ship! Except he doesn't say F, because this is a R-rated movie. Yeah. <laughs> trying to keep this as close to a PG-13 rated podcast as possible. <laughs> oh, you are going to, have to. Oh, and as part of this, we also get the full Latin phrase from the uh, captain's... Um, Horizon, who has a habit of liking to sign off everything with Latin phrases because he likes to feel profound, which is Labor- liberate tuteme ex inferis, save yourself from hell. So, when we're kind of hyper-summarizing this.
1: That is going to happen inevitably with this sort of film, because it is, it's not that it is lacking in plot, it is that so much is, you know, in development of the atmosphere going in, that it is... The plot it has is stretched out appropriately, but there's so much atmosphere involved that, I mean, you can't really describe, you know, it's like a quiet room, silence abounds, Peter is working on, trying to fix the thing, and she hears something behind her.
0: Yeah. It's a film that is excellent at building a really good sense of dread. And I think this film really gets across, to, like, this film really shows Paul W.S. Anderson's strengths as a director. If... I mean, he's made a lot of pretty poor films, but this film definitely shows that there is a good director in there who needs the right material. So, Weir destroys the the Lewis and Clark, which is the ship that um, Miller and his crew came in, and tries to engage the gravity drive, leading Miller to basically sacrifice himself to blow up and to destroy the Ubilical, separating the Crew section from the Star Drive section. It's actually kind of a bit like the an- some of the original prototype um, designs, not prototype designs, but the original unused bits of the of the original Enterprise in that way.
1: Yeah, I thought the ship looked a lot like a Klingon battle cruiser.
0: <laughs> it does, with some cathedral-like elements. Um, the director and the production designers commented they borrowed a lot from uh, Notre Dame Cathedral in their design of the ship, which brings us to. Kind of brings a comparison to an earlier movie we reviewed as well, or at least Blaine and I, with uh, Disney's The Black Hole. And, yeah. The ship is blown in two. Um, Miller possibly dies. It's not clear. The The gravity drive engages and sucks the star drive portion back into hell with Miller and Weir aboard. We certainly hope Miller dies. <laughs> yeah. While the crew section is propelled forward and is rescued, eventually rescued by another ship while our crew is in stasis, while the survivors of the uh, Lewis and Clark are in stasis. Though the three surviving members, um, Stark, Cooper, and then Justin, who managed to survive nearly getting sucked out into space by attempting to commit suicide while possessed, um, are certainly traumatized by the experience in particular Stark either sees a nightmare hallucination or just general hallucination weir on the face of one of the rescue crew.
1: Probably just a regular hallucination, given that they did establish at the beginning that uh, the hypersleep will make you see things when you come out of it. Yeah. But, you know, the film's open-ended enough that it could be anything. It could be
0: either, rather. And the film ends there, with a fairly open-ended ending, with the... with the fact that the uh, Star Drive section of the Event Horizon could theoretically re- re-emerge in the future, not to mention that we don't know if what if this sort of line of research and FTL technology is going to be abandoned or someone else is going to try this in the future. Because it's not like Sam Neill's note, uh, character um, Weir's notes got destroyed or anything like that.
1: Yeah, well, there's also the fact that, you know, when they approached, there were life signs throughout, so they still have half a possessed ship. It's just Portal to Hell was cut off from it.
0: Yeah. So, as I mentioned earlier, this film got a... When this film was greenlit, it had a pre-planned release date in mind. And this definitely led to some, some significant compromises in the making of the film. Some for the better, some for the worse. For example, the original theatrical cut was 2 hours 10 minutes. And I will say, having earlier this weekend when I record this, having seen um, Crimson Peak... I was thinking about the runtime for horror movies coming out of that movie, and I think when it comes to horror films, the furthest you can push it, I think, for a horror film is two hours. Anything longer than that, and you risk kind of exhausting the audience?
1: Yeah, it's a good point. Um, Also, horror films tend to not have a great deal of plot to work with, since they're very much about atmosphere and intensity of feeling. So, uh, I've seen some very bad horror films that would have been much better if they'd been cut down because they just try and
0: stretch it out. Yeah, the, the two sort of risks you have with making a horror film of a longer length, particularly when you start approaching two hours, is either you'll bore the audience because you have to pad the film or you risk emotionally exhausting the audience by basically putting them to the rear ringer too much and they sort of have to disengage themselves from the movie. Or what have you, and that's actually one of the things that came up as well. Is one of the, the bits from the film was heavily cut was extended sequences of what happened to the original crew of the Event Horizon, and sort of visions of hell that we're at the end of the film shows Miller of what will happen to the crew to the crew of the Lewis and Clark when they are brought back into hell by the ship, and it's a very horrific and grotesque, very inspired by in particular the producer and director, bring up Hieronymus Bosch, and I'm watching the... And in the original screenings of the film, members of the audience were passing out or fainting and that sort of thing. And when I look at it, so it's in the film right now, what made it to the final cut, and the thought is, you know, if you had more of this... Assuming you weren't having the audience passing out or throwing up in the in the aisles or that sort of thing, which will torque off your, your theater uh, employees who have to clean up afterwards... You're also really pushing an NC-17 rating.
1: Yeah, well, when the, when he's uh, when Anderson first submitted the first cut, it got the NC-17 rating, so you had to recut it.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of okay with the cuts he made. Um, the film, as it stands now, is a very strong horror film. It has no real fat to it. It covers everything very quickly and is very tense and suspenseful and all the members of the cast while they're not like given a massive amount of backstory or anything like that you get a really good feel for each member of the cast so that when they start acting out of sorts once they end up on the event horizon you know what to expect or you know what's going on uh also interestingly um, worth mentioning the film has a score by michael Kamen who also did the music for the original x-men film uh, which actually Paul W.S. Anderson was hired was offered before this but he picked this film because after doing two PG-13 rated films he wanted to do an R-rated movie and so he went with this one and it was done with collaboration with do with um Orbital a techno group who came in, who Anderson had worked previously with on his first American film Mortal Kombat and I do kind of wonder cuz I I went and checked and Michael Kamen's big collaboration album with Metallica, Symphony Metallica, came out several a couple of years after this. And I kind of, and from what I understand, Kamen went forward to Metallica to propose this idea. So I wonder if, if Event Horizon hadn't happened and Michael Kamen hadn't been hired to do the score and worked with Orbital, we wouldn't have gotten the Symphony and Metallica album, which is a really good Metallica album. Yeah.
1: Also worth noting, that if it hadn't been for this film, and it's, well, it is an excellent horror film, Paul Anderson might not have brought us Resident Evil. And there are a lot of feelings on
0: those films. <laughs> First film's all right, I think. It's not great, but it's all right. And then they made more of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we'll, talk, we'll
1: probably talk about Resident Evil at a later point, but it definitely runs... With all adapted works, you have the problem of staying too closely to the, to the original material or ve- venturing too far away from it. And I, given the films that I've seen, I have not actually seen all the Resident Evil films. Um, Paul W.S. Anderson has a trouble seeing that line.
0: But this film he did excellently on. Yes. When I was talk about how this film fared, it was critically panned. Going with critics' ratings, the tomato the tomato meter at Rotten Tomatoes gives it a, a 24%. Roger Ebert didn't like it. Stephen Hunter of the Washington Post didn't like it. It did have some supporters. Empire Magazine gave it a good review. Entertainment Weekly gave it a good review. Time Out Magazine gave it a pretty good review. I'm kind, yeah. I'm kind of interested in seeing how... I, I mean, Fangoria was still in publication at this time, and Starlog was still in publication at this time. I'd kind of be interested in seeing how... They handle this review. Um, let's see how Famous, Monst- Famous Monsters of Filmland was still being public- published. Nope, Famous Monsters of Filmland stopped publication... Fortun- oh, no, the revival of Famous Monsters of Filmland was being published at this time. But uh, Forrest J. Ackerman was no longer particularly involved. But we still had Fangoria. And, yeah, Fangoria still... might still being published right now. So is still around... Starlog is still around, so the two big sort of science fiction and horror magazines are still out. We're still out there at that time. I'd be kind of interested in seeing how they treated this movie. Box office wise, also didn't do that great. The according to Wikipedia and IMDb, the film's estimated budget was um, fifty thousand dollars. Not fifty thousand. Fifty million dollars. Not fifty thousand. And it only made according to uh wikipedia and box office mojo have domestic gross about 26.6 million and international gross going from um also from um imtb about 20.4 million which doesn't even get as close to the estimated budget i don't know how whether it's gotten any what the rentals figures were for this movie i know it's gotten significant legs on the rental market it's Gotten a much more redeemed reputation as a horror film from home video, but unfortunately, I don't know how we don't have the sort of video rental sales data for this. Unfortunately, so we're kind of getting at this point a little late. When was the first time you saw the movie, uh, David?
1: I first saw this film, I don't know, I don't think I saw it in theaters, but I probably saw it shortly after it hit the um, second, uh, Video market. Uh, Probably uh, the subsequent Halloween after it came out on video. (laughs) Looking for good scary movies. Yeah, so I was very young at the time. Probably 12 or 13, probably.
0: This is my first time actually watching the movie. I knew the film by its reputation as, oh, this is one of those movies where it's super scary. And I'd kind of, my response was my, uh, I considered watching it and I'd think about it and I'd have sort of the, the nope. Llama response. Nope, 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 nope. And sort of, this podcast finally gave me sort of the opportunity to yank the band-aid off and go, okay, I'm gonna watch this movie. I am glad I did, uh, but it, it is... It is a very legitimately creepy movie. And I certainly consider this one of the best horror films I've ever seen. Which leads to fares in the tournament, and much like many of the other films we've covered this month, it failed to place in the tournament. The... Bureau forty two users who voted on this movie, we had a total of thirty votes. Actually, probably a little more than that. Of our voters, we have a we have nine votes for average, not uh, nine votes for above average, twelve votes for below average, with another uh, about twenty three people who hadn't seen it. So kind of doing some quick math. So we had we had more people who'd seen it than hadn't seen it, but of the people who'd seen it. The majority of people were either ambivalent on the film or didn't like it. I can certainly see this being a very divisive film.
1: Yeah, this is—it's a this film has—it's uh, pretty pure atmosphere, and you know, not that the—I mean—the cast does an excellent job doing this, but if you're not drawn in, I can see why you'd be—you know—turned off by it.
0: Yeah, I mean, the gore can certainly cause problems for people. If you don't like gory movies, this movie's not going to do it for you. If you, because it's lots of gore, lots of shock horror, and when it's not doing the gore and the shock horror, it's doing the atmospheric horror. And so, on the one hand, it covers all the bases, but on the other hand, it there's a lot depending on what you like or don't like about a horror film. There's a lot here that can cause that can to turn to turn people off. Probably, as they also hear with the, uh, kind of makes the film work is it's a horror film that plays off of the fear of the unknown without using the, without using anything as a real stand in for the fear of the unknown, if that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's also probably one of the better examples of sort of a, on, on one hand, of a sort of Lovecraftian otherworldly horror as uh, uh, almost incomprehensible horror over, um, something more tangible while it's, while also being a sort of haunted house in space story.
1: Yeah, it's definitely one of the few science fiction horror films that doesn't have the, for lack of a better term, man in a rubber mask terrorizing the crew. Uh, It's, except for, you know, the end of it, where Weir snaps and just starts killing people, basically all the scary stuff is faceless.
0: You know, the members of the crew of the Lewis and Clark, we have basically maybe three deaths cuz miller hopefully dies in the engine room of the event horizon peter's is basically tricked into falling from a great height by the ship and dj is vivisected vivisected yeah and smith is blown up oh that's true uh smith oh. smith is blown up with the lewis and clark okay so that's four with three, with the remaining three, um, Justin, uh, Cooper, and Stark surviving. So, compared to, say, the crew of the Nostromo, the crew of the Lewis and Clark turned out alright? <laughs> I guess, in terms of numbers of survivors. Ugh. Alright, so, hmm. Any other final thoughts on Event Horizon?
1: Um, no? No, um, I really like this film, but clearly I am in the minority of movie-going viewers.
0: I mean, it's certainly a film that's gotten a major following. I mean, like, the video game Dead Space is very, very, very heavily influenced by this film. Although it has more monst- more actual physical monsters than this movie does, because it's, it's, it's a video game.
1: Well, they had to. Though, actually, I would love to play a mod of Dead Space where they take out all the necro. Morphs, because that would be because that game is really atmospheric, and well, maybe not all of them. Leave a couple in just to keep you get guessing.
0: And I definitely agree. Like, like the scenes of the game that are you fighting off wave after wave of Necromorph are probably the not gonna say the weakest portions of the game, but they are the least scary portions of the game. Yeah, like, uh, this is this is a film where I definitely say if you feel that if all you've seen are Paul W.S. Anderson's numerous lesser films, and you think, oh, this guy cannot make a good movie, and you enjoy horror, give this film a rental. You may be surprised. All right. So this wraps up our October horror reviews. Starting next month, we'll be kind of doing things a little different because I will be picking up, I will be temporarily taking over the host of the uh, Silver Screen Superheroes. Um, So I'll be shortening down... Uh, greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcast do to probably about one a month. And next month, we'll be taking on probably one of the biggest gateway films for anime fandom in the United States, if not the world, Akira. Thank you very much for, wa- for listening. And in- until next time, I'm Alex Case. I'm David Stark. And I'll- we'll see you next time.